The Athletic. Hello, everyone, once more. Thank you for joining us as we talk Murder GP, or specifically 500cc and the technology that was behind it. Hugely different tech to anything that we know from today, but it's all about racing motorcycles all the same. Joining me, Toby Moody, is Tom Jojic, who worked in pit lane during the latter years of the 500cc era and all the way through to uh, recent times. The 500 era that carved out so many heroes. Tom, what was your abiding memory of just being around those 500s? Well, Toby, thanks for having me again. Yeah, it was a, um, a special time in the pit lane. 500s were phenomenal. They were um, the pinnacle of motorcycle engineering. Uh, the simplicity and elegance, I think, are the two things that stand out for me. And coming from, you know, northern Canada <laughs> in the cold, uh, where, you know, you get lots of two-stroke snowmobiles, that sort of stuff. But anyways, like, you kind of have an interest in two-strokes, but you don't, there wasn't that many production road going bikes. But yeah, the, the ultimate racing machine, I would call them, like lightweight, super aggressive power bands, simplicity in design, but it took a lot of um, understanding to get them right in all aspects, right? Engineering and riding. Oh, there was uh, certainly a bit of a black art to it. And there was also a black art to the heroes who raced them. Sheen Roberts, who you worked with, Lawson Spencer, Gardner, Mamola, Rainey versus Schwantz, Doohan, and of course, Valentino Rossi, who won the last 500cc championship and the last 500cc race. But here is a bit of a, uh, a, bit of a step back in time. So, Toby, that sound of that 500 warming up, that revving, and it's like the elegance of it. Like, you can hear this ferocity, but it's all—it's a buildup of ferocity. And the riders, riders used to be afraid to ride those bikes. Even, like, the McDoohan multiple world champion said the first time he rode NSR, he was petrified. And here's a guy that was unbeatable. We can talk about maybe why he got to that point later on. But anyways, when you hear that thing and you think to yourself, I just, I still get goosebumps even just today listening to that. And I, I think that was the essence for me. I remember standing in the pit lane for the very first time. It was Phillip Island, not November of 98. I was there for a test with Team Roberts. And I just remember this sound and thinking, my God, they're more terrifying than they are on TV. Like you think, you think there's nothing to it, but really it's four strokes have some type of way of making it exciting but 500s had a different they had a different class like it is an elegance that i'm trying to get across it's interesting i was just about to use that word elegance. yeah yeah because the, there's, there's nothing to them really is no there? they're such a simple idea and they're such a clever idea really and it made them knife edges in every aspect but when you got it right there must have been a lot of satisfaction for a rider when you got it right and you could win on one. Like it, it, It's something special, that's for sure. So just to compare with today's beasts, and they are, they weigh just under 160 kilos. They've got about knocking on 300 horsepower, which is just nuts. But it's all about the torque because yeah. you're never using all of the horsepower all of the time. But the torque is a lot more pliable and, and user-friendly. Now, a V4 Repsol Honda NSR 500 was 130 kilos minimum weight. That's a, that's a full 30 kilos less. That's more than a bag of cement that you pick up from the builder's merchants. Yeah. So that's a lot less mass to accelerate and brake and move around and such like. But 
they didn't have any talk. <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> it was all about the light switch. Yeah, that's right. And and like a 500 obviously has torque compared to 250 and a 125. But still, you're right. Like you're comparing apples and oranges, right? And um, the thing is, when you drop 30 kilos, but the weight is so low anyway, right, Toby? There, It has a compounded effect, yeah. So you're, you're talking about a lot less inertia to slow down, to accelerate corner speed you can carry more corner speed um but when things go wrong they go wrong quicker like there's no um there's no forgiveness in the 500 let's put it that way right and so you have uh, all these aspects to worry about you have to ride the motorcycle as a complete package rider because you don't have engine braking to help you because a two-stroke doesn't create engine braking so people riding road bikes will know what engine braking is all about like if you backshift if you do an 100 kilometers an hour, 60 miles an hour, and you backshift the first gear, you're going to lock the back tire up. That's because you have this extra bit of friction that's going to stop it going forward. With a 500, any two-stroke, you don't have that. You backshift and then you'll just over-rev it, but it doesn't have this back pressure because there are no valves closing and opening and there's no camshafts going around. It's just airflow. That's all it is. And that's probably one of the things that maybe you can't get across as much, right? Like how hard they must have been to ride. Well, they were to ride. There's no doubt about that. But yeah, it's um, it's a di- it's a different animal, and um, it's kind of cool to hear bike being idled again, warmed up, a bit, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. Certainly is. And there was a lot of uh, a lot of skill in the in the in the in the creation of the engines as yeah. well but but let's just let's just come back to some of those names that i talked about before we heard the 500 being warmed up uh sheen through to to valentino rossi uh we never got the head-to-head between valentino and, and mick Doohan, for example Doohan fell off at her 99 uh, valentino came into the class in 2000 but but Doohan did five world championships on the trot why did you think Mick dominate? Good question. I think if you look at you know the list that you that you rattled off, we had multiple world champions in those lists, right? So once a guy figured out how to ride one, he almost became unbeatable because there's a knack to it. And and my feeling was like I I was a kid watching these guys race thinking god i'd love to do that and you're you're not good enough you know you realize okay i didn't practice enough or didn't get the opportunities whatever i remember watching you know gardner uh, mamola lawson and kenny even though i worked for kenny senior i never really watched kenny roberts because i was i was probably too young to watch it back then but but rainy and schwantz and doing fighting it out for me was like the ultimate battles if you go back and i think if you watched 92 that was what what a season like any one of those guys could win but the thing is wayne rainey won four world championships before schwantz won his one yeah and mick Doohan hadn't won one yet and they were all trying to beat wayne he was the benchmark and i think kevin won more races than wayne but he only won one world championship and a lot of people pick Kevin Schwantz as their favorite all-time 500 rider. I do. That's an emotional thing, not a stat. 100%. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Not not because of world championships, but because of his charisma, like the way he he was on and off the bike, the way he celebrated when he won, his all-out winner or crash attitude. You know, lots of people love that, right? And Mick really was beaten consistently by Rainey and Schwantz, in my opinion, and Honda were trying to make the bike right. So they had Mick there like fighting away. He had his crew who became Valentino's crew. So they really understood how to get the best out of Honda. And and Mick understood what he wanted to go fast. He had his own specific riding style. And I think all these guys had their own riding style. So they understood their package and made and made it work. I mean, Rainey only rode a Yamaha. Kevin only rode a Suzuki. And Mick only rode a Honda. So that's, you know, that's something to, to discuss. So he became unbeatable because Rainey crashed, broke his back and was gone. Kevin won the championship that year, but deserved it, deservedly so, was leading the championship had he not been taken out in Donington and hurt his wrist, had some injury to deal with after that. And then Kevin realized he didn't want to do it anymore and he left the championship. Well, who could beat Mick after that? Honda had sorted the bike out and he became, it, it was like the guys were close, but there was nobody that had come up. He Nobody had to battle as many people 
as hard as McDoohan did, I think. I think you might be you might be a little bit hard on Mick if I could say so, because he was one of the most determined species Definitely. I've ever met. He was sheer bloody mindedness yeah. that only an Australian can can do. He was an unstoppable steamroller. And what did he say? Somebody said Oh, why do you make the races boring? And he says, well, I'm not here to entertain. I'm here to win the bloody race. Well, I, th I think <laughs> he showed how good he was after Rainey and Schwartz were gone. I'm not saying that he wouldn't have won the championships had they been there. What I'm just saying is because he had such hard characters to race and Honda, you know, don't forget in 92, they came out with Big Bang, which is something we can discuss. So Screamer versus Big Bang. And he had this huge advantage of Honda really wanting to win this championship and then all of a sudden, the two guys that would probably take it away from him weren't there anymore. So what he did was exactly what you said. He just knuckled down and went, well, if they can't beat me, tough. And you know what? I think anybody at that level would have done that, right? So I think Mick doing winning five in a row. Wow. Like, will that ever be, um, will that ever be done again? I don't know. But, but amazing. Yeah, definitely. You mentioned Screamer and Big Bang. Um, mm. Screamer, any any engine that screams gets people's emotion going, and a Big Bang is is what? So differentiate the difference. A Screamer is, think of when you hear an F1 engine, that's a Screamer, right? And two strokes and four strokes can sound like that. So the difference is a two stroke, if people out there listening don't know, fires every time the piston comes to the top. That's why it's called two stroke. It needs two strokes, one down, one up. Four stroke, which is what every car out there is now mostly in, and motorcycle takes four strokes to finish that cycle, intake, compression, power, exhaust, right? So if we talk about just two strokes, forget about everything else at the moment, screamer. So you have three, 360 degrees, one revolution to fire. And if you have- Of four the crank. Correct, one revolution of the crankshaft. And you have four pistons going up and down within that 360 degrees. And if you evenly space them at 90 degrees and fire each one 90 degrees apart, you'll fire in an even firing order. And that's a screamer. Yeah. Think of a clock. 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, exactly. 9 o'clock, back to 12. Yeah. So if you do that, the engine will literally scream because it sounds smooth and it's even and, and all the rest of it. But the tires didn't like that because you never give it a chance to recover, especially when they hit their very narrow RPM power band. So Honda had this very clever idea because the pistons are actually moving up and down in pairs because the crank pin is being shared. So it's kind of like you have to visualize two pistons going up together, but they're actually firing at different times. It's kind of an interesting concept. So what they did was they staggered those crank pins and fired the cylinders closer together and gave the engine time to tire a chance to recover. And it became what was called a big bang. So you fire them probably within about, I don't know, 75 degrees of each other or something like that. I can't remember the exact numbers. And what that did was it it hit with the, roughly the same amount of power, but the tire didn't get this constant hit of power. So it had one big hit and then a, a lot of time to recover. And the rider said it felt slow, but the lap times were fast. So the tire didn't get destroyed in the race as easily. And then you had this Unfortunately, what it used to do, so the negative of all this was it would break parts because you're hitting, you're hitting with this ultimate power. So you have to figure out how to stop your, your new firing order to, to not damage, especially mm. pri primary drives, which is what it used to break. So, mm. yeah, so that's kind of how that worked. So it would be a bit more boom, boom, let the tire recover. Boom, boom, let the tire yeah. recover rather than boom, 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 yeah, all yeah. the way through. It, it's maybe they, that simple. It is that simple. And the easiest way to understand it is if you guys out there are listening, if you listen to like a, a 90s Suzuki Kawasaki inline four coming down the motorway, and then you had a Ducati beside it, that's basically it. Because a Ducati is effectively, it is a V-twin at 90 degrees. That's a big bang. And a screamer is an inline four firing every, well, in that case, 180 degrees apart because you got 720 to cover the whole thing. But that's, that is the concept. And it's a, you'll hear it. And if you've ridden those two, those two opposing motorcycles, everybody, I don't know anybody that hasn't ridden both. Toby and said they prefer the twin because it has that 
beautiful torque off the bottom and that drivability. And that's exactly what it is in a two-stroke. But imagine it more ferocious yeah. than anything you've ever ever ridden. Yeah. So talking about Ducati, is that 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 sparked my my mind. Why did the the superbike guys not really make the changeover to five hundreds? Was it just superbike was cooler in those days? Was there more money, or was it just oh hang on a minute, I've got to completely learn again how to ride a bike? Yeah, I think your last statement probably is maybe guys out there don't want to hear that. <laughs> I think you came off a superbike and they were like more forgiving. They were heavier. They had this lovely torque curve, even an inline four, you know, 750,000 cc four stroke is going to be softer and easier to manage than a 502 stroke. And then all of a sudden you're thrown in the deep end with guys that were practicing this day in, day out. And they were hard to ride. And there was some superbike guys that showed up that were able to do it like one-offs, maybe be fairly competitive, never really fought for the championship. Like look at Gary McCoy. I mean, Carl Fogarty made an amazing jump into 500s, but he didn't stay for long enough. Um, he dominated Superbike after that. So mm -hmm. fair play to him. He, he took his choice of doing what he wanted to do. But I think everybody out there at the time, riders and fans all said, if you're if you're the 500 world champion, you are the best rider in the world. And the guys that didn't do it, well, they had their reasons. Potentially, they couldn't maybe get in the right team. Like you said, they might have got paid more to do Superbike. And there was a big competition back then, Toby, wasn't there, against Superbike World Championship versus 500 World Championship. So it wasn't just like, you know, let's, let's go over here. And, and also, Superbike was, was a production-based class. So it kind of yeah, exactly. Which was even cooler. <laughs> yeah, for for if you were winning that, you could like in the UK because Carl won so many loads of bikes got sold because of that. Ducati made millions because of nine one six sales, right? Yeah. And um, I think some of that was also like, okay, like why do I need to go over there? I can just win this one. Probably got paid more winning Superbike. I don't know, but you know, if it was me, I'd want to be the best rider in the world and I'd want to ride a 500 no matter what. I would have I would have been that Mick Doon determination of I'm going to figure this out even if it takes me a couple of years. And it, he didn't do it off the bat, did he? It took him a little no. while. Yeah. He, he didn't mess about. He didn't mess about. But but yeah. also not only Mick was dominating, but Honda were dominating as well with Mick. They won the 500cc riders championship from 94 to 2001 inclusive. That's 7 from 8 years. Only <laughs> Kenny Roberts Jr. beating them back in 2000. So hmm. Honda, and, and and actually when when you say that, you look and you think, well, if Honda were dominating so much, why did they almost push the four-stroke 990 thing forward? But that's another discussion almost for another day. But, yeah. but it is interesting to look at it that way, that they did win the last 500 race and they won the first 990 race. I mean, that's a yeah. massive... Yeah, <laughs> line in the sand, should we say? Definitely. But that's the Honda Motor Company for you. Yeah, back then they they were on a mission, right? And HRC was a separate company inside Honda, so they were a racing corporation. That's what HRC stands for, and their target was to win world championships and be it, you know, five hundreds, two fifties, one two fives, superbike, everything, right? They wanted to win it, and they still do. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that 500s went away, but I think if we talk about what they were good at and from an engineering perspective, like from my eyes showing up there, I came from an aircraft background, Toby, and thanks to you, we did a podcast about me, didn't we? Which was about, you know, Tom Yoyich and where he came from, like this guy from Canada who didn't really have anything to do with motorcycles, but I just a love and a passion for it. Luckily I, I. I worked with some amazing people that were open book. So if you wanted to learn, it was just how many questions could you ask and what could you absorb? But what I liked and love about 500s is how simple they are and how an independent manufacturer could be competitive against the might of like someone like Honda or Yamaha, right? Because they're such an elegant machine. Like if you look at a piston, if you look at a barrel, if you look at a crankshaft, if you look at the carburetors, some people out there maybe don't even know what a carburetor is, right, Toby? <laughs> Some young <laughs> listeners. I mean, it, it it was like something that I remember somebody saying to me one day, you got to imagine that you're a molecule of oxygen, of air going through the carburetor. Well, first of all, you're coming up to the motorcycle and you're about to get sucked in the air box. What happens to you by the time you get spit out the other end? 
it's all computational fluid dynamics, right? So it's all how do we get the airflow to be efficient? And in car racing and four-stroke racing, like what do we do, Toby? We cheat. We put a turbo or a supercharger on it and we push that air in there. You know what I mean? Whereas 500s, you don't have that. There, It's like if you balance the flow of, of oxygen, then you make more power. It's just about being efficient. So they, But they modern were, MotoGP doesn't have a blower on it, so no. it's still relevant today. It is, yeah. I mean, four strokes, they work in a different way, but, but definitely 500s were... Um, yeah, they were special. And when you saw an exhaust pipe, like, you know, a handmade exhaust pipe, I mean, okay, we still have that today, but but there was people doing crazy number crunching in the background to make these shapes that were all about getting scavenging, like from a cylinder, right? So it, it's kind of it's kind of an amazing thing that it, it doesn't really exist now in, in engine technology, right? Mm-hmm. There were some very talented guys that you had at Team Roberts welding away. How long would it take them to do an exhaust? You told me once. Yeah, I mean, I think, okay, so four of them on on each bike, right? It was a day to fabricate one titanium exhaust pipe, yeah? So cut the metal, bend it to shape, tack. Then you used to flow um, argon up the center because you can't weld titanium, right? It has to be an inert. Yeah, inside a chamber would be the best way, but... They, we did. We made a little jig for those guys, and and then they welded it with argon flowing through the pipe while it, it was spinning like a rotisserie, you know, type of thing. And it was phenomenal to watch these craftsmen at work. And and that was with every part of the motorcycle, the aluminium chassis. Um, we made carbon fiber air boxes, carbon fiber body panels. In the end, we had other companies make those carbon fiber parts. But but yeah, it was um, it was quite something to to watch. You mentioned the the fact that the I won't say the guy under the arches. I won't say the guy who was the amateur, but because none of them were amateurs. But it was that opportunity for the privateer, the garageiste, as Enzo Ferrari would call them, the garageiste to to make a difference. And you know, Harold Bartel or Bud, Bud Axland or Professor Robert Fleck or John McGee that you worked with. I mean. You, you you probably had the same feeling walking into Harold Bartol's workshop in Strasvalken, not a million miles away from Salzburg in Austria, as I did, which was, Harold, is this it? Yeah. Is this where it all comes from? And yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's the kind of size of a double, triple garage. That's yeah. it. Yeah, it's amazing, wasn't it? And Banbury, like the workshop was very small. Like it wasn't huge, right? We were an industrial estate. And um, we had this lovely little workshop. But yeah, it, it was, you're right. It was like a moment in time when you walk. I remember walking in and, and you'd hear like a pencil grinder going in the background. You felt like you were at the dentist. You know, somebody was grinding. I think it was Bud Axon. He was grinding like the crankcases of a, a three-cylinder Kenny Roberts designed engine. And I remember asking him, well, what are you doing? And he, he's like, well, we've got to get we need the airflow to be better. And and you see these little sharp edges here, they're just dis- disturbing everything. And it, they were always looking for minute little details. And I, I was just shocked by all that. And when you, um, when you saw like a crankshaft, like you won't, you know, when we were listening to that warm up and you heard that ferocity as he's blipping it at the end, like that, whoom, whoom. but the thing is, there's an inertia there. There's a delay to that, to that hit. Like if, if you hear a, four stroke being revved up it's almost too aggressive too quick and the snappiness yeah and that was all down to crankshaft inertia you needed this like perfection of mechanical engineering so that when the rider was on maximum angle and they opened the throttle they felt what was about to happen because there was no electronics to save you and the tires weren't as good so they this riding style was like you had to be that was the most critical moment in time for everybody and if you got it right, you gave somebody something that he could use, and then they could open the throttle how they wanted to, and then pick up the pick it up off the edge and drive off the corner. And I, I remember seeing the crankshafts, thinking that's strange. Like, look how having some engineering background myself, but not really understanding what, what was going on inside that motorcycle, because I'd seen inside four-stroke motorcycles before I got there. But they um, they had these really thin, tall webs on the crank, Toby, right? So this is all about crankshaft inertia so that you, it's like, if you think about when you're exercising and you're running, 
your heart rate takes a little while to get going, right? But once it's up there, it stays up there. And when you stop running, it takes a while for your heart rate to reduce, right? Well, that's inertia. And the engines are exactly the same. If, if, you, if you make the crankshaft too light and not have any inertia, you all of a sudden have something that's over-responsive, so you don't have any of that delay. And imagine you're like, you know, one of these guys that couldn't manhandle these bikes and you're in the corner of the tire. And if you think the, the contact patch of a Grand Prix tire is smaller than the palm of your hand, yeah? If people look down at the palm of their hand, we're trying to put 180 horsepower through that. If you touch the throttle and it's over aggressive, all of a sudden you'd get what was the high side and that would spit them over the top and cause a lot of injuries. And so how the inertia works is if you think about a dinner plate and you think about a tea saucer, yeah, stand them on their side and look at them from a knife edge point of view, you want the, you want the plate to be as tall as possible, but as thin as possible. They can weigh the same. So let's say the tea saucer is thicker and the mass is the same. That's not inertia, that's mass. Inertia is, is how easy can you control it when it starts to spin. So the taller that web and the thinner that web, with the correct mass gives control. And that's what these 500s had. They That was something that when you saw that, you thought, wow, how cool is that? Like they're so elegant. There was also with 185 horsepower, a, a rumor that Honda got even more about out of their engine and sort of topped out at 200. Um, fuel injection, nobody really knew how it worked, did they? Well, they did, but we didn't. <laughs> yeah, they did. They did. Yeah, I mean, fuel injection is a good question because, you know, two strokes are effectively, in those race engines, you pre-mixed. So your petrol tank was fuel and oil together, mixed together. So the lubrication came from the fuel and oil flowing around everything. Yeah, that's how the that's how the engine works. And and in those days, how, how could you fuel inject if you needed oil to go around you needed oil to go around your your crankcase, around your crankshaft. Otherwise, they would seize, right? And they did seize if you got that wrong. So, so there was like a there was a fine tuning of everything, like mixtures of oil, how much oil to how much fuel, depending on how aggressive your fuel was. Castrol seven four seven used to be the smell. Everybody, we love that smell. When we smell it, you don't smell it anymore. And then also like how much, um, you know, you you would have a. If you go back to like where you were at the at the racetrack, you, you would go from South Africa to Hareth or something. The air pressure and temperature changed so much. You have to understand, I need to change my main jet when I go to a higher or lower pressure slash temperature. So you'd see all the mechanics, they'd have their little wet, dry temperature, and then they'd have their pressure gauge to tell them what the pressure was. And they all had like little Excel sheets and little charts that you'd go, okay, we need to go three main jets smaller for this racetrack because we're at altitude or temperatures higher or the pressure's different like it was all number crunched beforehand right toby and then all of this stuff you you, you would have a under the spark plug detonation and pressure sensor that was measuring the pressure in the combustion chamber and measuring whether you were detonating or not but you wanted the thing to be as close to detonation like to seizing as possible without seizing because that then you get the maximum efficiency out of it Honda comes along and sticks fuel injection on and gets probably 200 horsepower they're talking about. That's phenomenal. And maybe the only people that actually know how it worked are the people that were in those garages on those days that saw what it was because I don't know how they did it. I, I know we had um, we had a thing called a power jet inside the flat slide carburetor. And that power jet was like a half a, half a main jet size. And you it was an electronic solenoid that we had our own ECU, our own ignition system at Team Roberts. And you could turn that power jet on and off at different RPMs and different gear. It wasn't related. I don't think it was related to the throttle position. I think it was just RPM and gear. But anyways, you had six gears and any RPM you could pick and you could switch it on and off as many times as you wanted to. So for me, it was like this ultimate tool you had like, oh, that's cool. Okay, we can go down on the main jet. We can get the thing really close if you understood how your detonation and pressure sensor worked. And then you would then switch this power jet on just in case, right? Because the last thing you want to do is, is spit your rider off like in a high-speed corner when he's just feathering the throttle because those were the moments that had happened, right? 
Weight limits in the 500cc class were so much different from today's modern MotoGP weight limit singular because in 500s there were three different weight limits. 100 kilos if you had a two-cylinder, 115 kilos if you had a three-cylinder and 130 kilos minimum weight if you had a four-cylinder. Now just to remind you, the modern MotoGP bike has a weight limit of 158 kilos so can you imagine a motorcycle nearly 60 kilos lighter when in 1996 Honda introduced their NSR 500V, which was a twin cylinder? It nearly won its first race. Why? Because it was at Shah Alam in Malaysia on the outskirts of Kuala Lumpur, and it was a very tight and twisty kind of racetrack. The 500s just almost had too much power, and they couldn't get it down. But there was a rain shower, and Taddy had trouble, and it all went wrong, unfortunately. The idea was there from Honda that the twin that was 30 kilos lighter than an NSR 500, a four-cylinder 500cc bike, 30 kilos lighter, but unfortunately it didn't quite work out. I mean, Tom, you know, is only a couple of kilos heavier than a 250 with double the capacity. Yeah. Talk about a Frankenstein. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, like what a great idea. And it was the idea was to fill the grid, wasn't it? Like get more bikes on the grid and make them more affordable. But yeah, Taddy almost won that race. And we were at a racetrack that, like you said, was super tight, super twisty. So he could use the corner speed because it was lighter. And the twin would have been let's call it even a bigger bang because now you've only got two cylinders firing instead of four cylinders firing in the same in the same 360 degrees so it effectively was an easier package to ride and if you were a 250 rider you probably would have wanted to ride a twin before you rode the four i would have thought. as he did exactly yeah nail on the head and therefore you had the chance to make some amazing results at certain racetracks where where the four couldn't use all of that extra power it had but unfortunately it just never quite it never no. quite did what it should have done on paper and i think for that one rain shower it actually changed the course of that kind of late 90s late 500 cc history mm. because can you imagine a bike turning up and winning its first race with a completely different configuration he was leading he was leading he was leading it yeah and then this rain shower caught him out the race stopped it started again and i think taddy had whacked himself and then luca Cadalora won the race and it was yeah it never quite was to be in 1997 Mick, at the beginning of the season, there was talk that Mick Doohan would would ride the V-Twin at a Shah Alarm or even a Donington because that you didn't need oh, yeah. the sheer grunt and horsepower that mm. you would at a Mugello or a Barcelona, for example. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, it, it never, never worked either because that would have been great to see somebody ride two different bikes in the same year. Yeah. It's a shame he didn't. Maybe that maybe had Mick done that, maybe it would have saved the twin mm. and, and made it more viable package for other people. Totally, totally. But it was a customer bike that was a major it was a different yeah. project leader and such like it was a major thing. But um but yeah. when you when you joined Team Roberts at the end of, of ninety eight, yes, you've explained what it was like standing in the pit lane looking at a five hundred. That's just you being a fan. But but yeah, <laughs> as we all are. But but what 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 was it like trying to trying to keep up with the big manufacturers from i won't say little team roberts because they're still big in my mind mm. and yours but relatively yeah. speaking little team roberts yeah exactly it was um it was an a, an amazing experience so yeah you had these people that had all this knowledge and they were making parts as fast as you could make parts like i was quite surprised by what was going on and having like i'd come from formula one toby right so i'd already seen what formula one people were capable of and been to le mans and all that so i know tick the box i'd raced all night all day that wasn't a problem these races were short they were easy you know but yeah when you saw what was a what was achievable by a group of people all pulling in the same direction and not many of them yeah that was something that opened my eyes and i think it was um it was kind of cool because you had the might of honda but yet we had this tiny little 
manufacturing companies all over the planet like that could make these motorcycles and be competitive. And if you had the right tires and you had the correct rider and you made a good package and you went testing, you could potentially, maybe you might not win the race or, or let's say win the championship, but you could win races and you could stick the thing on pole and be, and be consistently in the top 10. And I think that that was enough to um, get sponsorship and keep you going. It certainly was for, for, for King Kenny. He ended up by making the halfway house. He made a triple to uh, two stroke that came out at the beginning of 97 all the marlboro money stayed with kenny but it was over to the little the little triple you know jean-michel bale he could barely fit on the thing um what was your vibe you weren't there at the beginning of the season mm. in 97 you were there a couple of years later but what was the vibe of why kenny made the halfway house yeah kenny made the triple because he was beaten by spencer on a triple right so Freddie showed up and won on the Honda Triple. And I think at the time, it, there was Mike Sinclair and Warren Willing were doing the engineering side and Tom O'Kane was in the background. Really, Tom O'Kane was the brains of the operation. Um, and he was doing all the number crunching and they realized, well, if we make a triple, nobody else is doing one right now. Honda had already made the twin and they, they saw the potential like a Chalam. They thought, well, we're only 15 kilos heavier, but we actually might be closer to the four-cylinder power than... We'll definitely be more than the twin power, but we'll be able to carry the kind of corner speed the twins carrying. They, I think at the time it was the right decision, you know, and they had some really clever ideas that maybe were ahead of their time and hadn't really been number crunched to perfection. So for example, the first one, when I showed up, they, they had the radiator under the seat and it's not a stupid place to put it because if you narrow, if you narrow the air, you know, the frontal area, you gain horse top speed without horsepower. So this drag goes down just because of frontal area. And if you can slow the air down from the front of the bike till by the time it hits the radiator, because the limiting factor of cooling is this, the airspeed through the, through the core. That's the limiting bit. And then if you put the exit of that in a low pressure point that draws the air through as well, you can get the, you get so many benefits. Unfortunately, they had other problems, which overheating was one of them. Whether that was down to the radiator position or down to engine design, I don't know because I came after the fact. But it, it all it all kind of got abandoned, and, and maybe they were trying to do too much at once. But when they when they got it right and the triple was was being engineered and made, and it became competitive, it was it was amazing. In the beginning, though, that. And it's a crying shame to say this, that that 1997 triple Medina Marlboro colours, I mean, it was a beautiful looking thing. I don't think I've ever seen one since. It was a tiny, it was a 250 really thing, wasn't it? It, it was, was a tiny little thing. Yeah. But it, what it, what it, what it made up for in visual looks, it had a bit of a pacing at the time. Was it the wrong decision for for TWR to, to be the engine builders who'd never made a two-stroke before, do you? Think? Yeah, probably. I mean, they they showed up and and strangely enough, they went to TWR to make a two-stroke engine. Here's an engine tuning company, manufacturing company for Formula One, but they'd never made a two-stroke before. So I don't know if that was a good decision. I, looking back now, you would say no. And they also, that first engine didn't have a balance shaft. So with three cylinders, you have to balance that that engine because you've got three things firing within 360 degrees. So you, it, I remember Tom O'Kane telling me the story when I arrived that the the riders used to almost levitate <laughs> off the foot pegs because they were it was vibrating so bad. And it used to break things like you wouldn't believe, Toby, because the vibration, yeah. So... When John McGee arrived, which was the same time I arrived in the team, he was the engine designer that had come from, um, I think he was doing jet ski engines in California and he'd met Bud Axland somehow. And then that's how he came into the team. So like ah, crazy, Brilliant. like, you know what I mean? And he showed up and basically they had gone to, Kenny had gone to, to not using the TWR engine during 98. They were then using a Morawaki engine, which was effectively the old Honda Triple back in the day yeah with a balance shaft but it was huge it meant they they couldn't run the the 250 style geometry they wanted john mcgee then took all the best bits of both designs and made his own and that was the one they ended with the triple that had a balance shaft it was it was cool so that was what i loved about it was the fact that you just 
pick people out of this out of the air that were like this here was a specialist in this we got him he was a specialist like i was a specialist in electronics toby so i came along to to build manufacture the wiring looms in-house because they were made their own ignition system so they they didn't want someone else doing it so that was kind of my background was that aircraft electronics so it was kind of cool that you you got to see this type of stuff and and probably worked with the cleverest person ever in the pit lane tom O'Kane. yeah what an amazing mentor and boss to have and um i think i learned more in those years from 98 till he left in 2005 at the end of four to go to suzuki with kenny jr yeah awesome and he's still working up and down pit lane he only yeah. just left suzuki after winning his last race with suzuki at valencia 2022 yeah. but philip island how good and philip island as but, well i mean what yeah, a strong yeah, yeah. last lap he did old alex rins but um what a fairy tale for everybody involved in in suzuki motor gp in 2022 yeah, yeah. but tom O'Kane is going to be or he's gone already to the uh, factory Yamaha team and what a coup they have got. Wow, from, good for them. From, exactly, good for them. What a coup that Yamaha have got with Suzuki's boardroom decision to, to, to pull out. Uh, but he's yeah. a clever guy. My goodness me, he's a clever well, he guy. Well, he won't make the bike worse, that's for sure. And he <laughs> has a lot of Yamaha experience, yeah. He's, um, he would have been, you know, there's probably still people in that project that remember Tom O'Kane from, from 1990 six you know all the years that wayne won his championship tom o'kane was in the background so yeah i'm happy for tom that he's still going to be there and i'm also happy for yamaha because they kind of probably need someone like that i mean that suzuki yeah. is so good isn't it i mean I'm, i know i'm jumping into 990s or sorry thousands but but all of that stuff worked all of the reasons why the kenny roberts triple was so competitive was because of tom o'kane and everybody else working hard in the background Now, in 2002, that was the first year of MotoGP, the 990cc four-strokes. But it was a crossover year because there were some 500s still allowed onto the grids to, to fill the grid out. Um, we all had discussed at the beginning of the year that it was supposed to be that a two-stroke was going to win at Saxon Ring. I can't remember that chit-chat. Can you remind me? <laughs> I think you're right because I think it was even what, what was it, Toby? Back in 2000, the fastest lap was a 250, right in Saxon Ring, and the first Saxon Ring because it's a little bit different now to what viewers are watching. If the, if we if you guys haven't seen the original layout, it didn't really have a straight, did it? It was like just twisty and bendy, and um, yeah, I remember. Um, Working with Olivier Jacques years later, he he won that race in 2000, and I think he had the fastest lap, uh, and he beat the 500s in lap time. So it, it was um, one of those things where you kind of you could look at a few racetracks in the calendar and go on a 500. Yeah, we've got a chance there. Yeah, we've got a chance there. So if you didn't have your 990 ready to be racing in the 500 for one more year, it wasn't going to be a complete disaster, was it? The irony was in 2002, when Olivier Jacques was on a 500, he was on a Goulois mid-blue, very French-looking Yamaha yeah. run out of Tech 3. And he was up there and he was there and he was there and he was there, but he made a mistake and Barros and him went down the road and the door was left open yeah. and a four-stroke won the race. And everybody's heart sank going. That fairy tale, unfortunately, just slipped away in the middle of the summer. But then we had part two because you, you guys went to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Phillip Island, yeah. Another one of those racetracks where, okay, it's got a decent straight and a fast corner leading onto it, which I, actually I think the fast corner was, um, it was good for the 500, but yeah. But the, a lot of that racetrack, for people that haven't been to Phillip Island, Toby, I mean, if you can go to one race in your life, go to Phillip Island, yeah. Yeah, I'd still go to Mugello, sorry. Well, Mugello, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm an atmosphere guy. Op yeah i yeah. i agree magello is an awesome place for atmosphere and it, it is my favorite european racetrack magello but phillip island really is a motorcycle racetrack too mm. isn't it and it's so special right and yeah jeremy put that thing on pole nabu was third and um i think was it right toby we had four 
four. I think we had four two-strokes on the front row. Yeah, four across the front row. McWilliams on pole position from Gary McCoy, from Nobuatsu Aoki, who was on your triple out of Team Roberts, and then Jürgen van der Gerberg, who was on a yellow Irv Kanemoto run Honda NSR with yeah. Bridgestones as well. So Bridgestones, though, we, we must give them the utmost of credit what did jeremy say years later you just couldn't fall off that thing no i mean bridgestone the front, arrived. That was <laughs> yeah the front that's right bridgestone arrived and um Nabuetsu Aoki was a bridgestone rider he came to team robertson and we swapped um to bridgestones and and they just wanted to go testing they were keen to win they wanted to get into MotoGP, and their front tire was ridiculous i mean they're everything about bridgestone they were such a methodical company and i remember watching looking at front brake pressure traces at maximum lean angle thinking how's that possible and and um yeah these guys could rail around corners with front brake on and you thought it's just unbelievable unfortunately racing at 990 with a 500 wasn't easy you know but you could do if you could do that one lap like in qualifying and you had qualifying tires and all the rest of it yeah, you could put the thing on the front row. If you could escape, Toby, like if you got off the line well, and let's say you got to turn one, and let's say you did three or four or five like qualifying laps in a row, and the 990 couldn't get past you, we could talk about why maybe 990s could beat a 500. Maybe you had a chance, right? Yeah, maybe you had a chance. But that Australia Saturday afternoon was 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 mind-bending. yeah. Jeremy on pole position was 0.6 of a second faster than the best 990. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you'd pay real money. That's for, huge, isn't it? You'd pay real yeah. money for six tenths of a second in a pit garage, wouldn't you? Yeah. Um, yeah but also yeah. leading up to towards the end of the the Swans song of 500s, they had podiums at, that year at Hareth with Daijiro Kato. Barros was second at Assen and third at Donington. Caparossi, he was on the podium at South Africa and also Mategi. I mean, Barros, he finished, he finished fourth in the world championship, but he was rather aided and abetted by the fact that he did the last four Grand Prix on a V5 because all sorts of people changed bikes mid-season, including, Cap- did, including Barros. And Barros mm. jumped on a, on a V5 and he went... Right, won the first race and he won the last race with podiums in between. So yeah, he was yeah, he was yeah, just yeah. awesome. That'll never happen again. Guy riding a bike on a Friday no. morning and won a Grand Prix on Sunday afternoon. But uh, yeah, good days, good days. They're always good days. These are the good old days. I'm a big fan of that, of <laughs> that one liner. But the pit lane atmosphere was was different. It wasn't necessarily better or worse. It was different. I mean, I went. I I never forget. I came to see you once, and you were you were fixing someone else's bike yeah those were the days when when the atmosphere in the pit lane was like a it was like a being at a campground wasn't it toby you had all classes camping in the in the pit lane like well they had their motorhomes right you had all three classes some engineers some team bosses were sleeping at the racetrack there was always a barbecue going on somewhere there was always lots of drinks teams beer with kenny beer yeah lots of Lots of intermingling of crew chiefs, mechanics, all that. Like, it was really a, it was a lifestyle. It was cool, wasn't yeah. it? But yeah, you're right. I remember, I remember coming back to the truck at like eight o'clock. We were thinking, well, where are these guys? We're supposed to be having dinner. And you walked in the back of the truck and there was um, our fabricator welding a Yamaha 500 that had cracked. And they wanted it for the next day to race. So this was Saturday night. They still they still had to put that bike back together. Someone had found something when they took the engine out and they were changing the pistons the night before the race, which was normal. It wasn't something you didn't do. You had to do it. And um, and yeah, there was this Yamaha 500 in our back in our back of our truck because Kenny always had a, an engineering truck, right? We had a lathe, we had a mill, we had a, all the welding kit, everything. Like if you had to make something, you made it. Like that was there was no question. Like you just worked until it was done. And, and not that that doesn't happen today, but it was definitely different. It, it was, you wouldn't, I don't think you'd see a Ducati chassis being wheeled into a KTM truck to be welded today. You know, you know what I mean? Uh, big fat no. No, I don't think so. Big so, fat. and like, yeah, back then, like you shouldn't have, but we had a good luck. You know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> maybe got the tape measure out, checked a couple <laughs> things to make sure it was what we thought it was, you know, like that type of stuff. And, uh, you know, if the, 
if there was a usually there would be like a Yamaha mechanic standing there waiting too and you'd go hey you want a coffee you know take him in the back of the garage like try to get him out of the truck so you could check some things over yeah those were the days eh Toby yeah they were they were they were certainly good days um the uh, the end came through emissions some say but we say no the end came through commercialism of where the sport needed to go because 500s well they were beginning to show their age it was old technology and formula one had brilliant cylinder head technology it's all about the head since the early 90s they had air valves renault was so victorious in the back of a williams and then in the back of a benetton and of course eventually air valves very much now part of modern moto gp but it was uh, it was uh, they were good days they were good days and 125 and 250 lasted for so much longer before moto 3 and eventually moto 2 but uh, that noise of a 500 uh, tom still got on his phone I do, don't I? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a shame it came to an end. But you're right, like emissions, you know, a two-stroke is very clean when it's burning efficiently in its power band. And the problem is you're selling, you're, they're trying to sell these things to the general public and nobody's buying two-strokes. They, they stopped all that because they're not clean when they're not in that zone, which is 90% of the time riding around on the streets, right? So... And also, I think, Toby, part of the reason was Superbike was becoming so close in competitiveness and lap time, the manufacturers had to do something because they wanted the MotoGP to stay as the pinnacle. So we moved on to prototype 990s, which never existed on the planet until 2002. And then that's where we are. We've gone from there. One of the reasons why apparently we didn't go to Laguna Seca for such a long period of time because yeah. they were never going to let the two strokes run. They last ran in 94 at Laguna and then it was a big wait back around until uh, 2005. But of course, it was only the four strokes that went in 2005 exactly. and not the 125s nor the 250s. So it opened up a completely different market as well. And what a great victory it was that day for Nikki Hayden. Uh, Tom, thank you so much. One of our series of five podcasts that we are doing at the moment. Great to have you back. Um, keep in touch and we will look forward to our next chat. Thanks, Toby. It's been a pleasure. Tom Jojic, ladies and gentlemen, here with the Race MotoGP podcast. Give us a like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. In the meantime, from myself, Toby Moody, speak to you soon. The Athletic.